0: The Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we seek to compare Mormon and Creedal Christian thought. This is Skylar, flying solo today, another bonus episode. In Genesis 3, the Lord God said to the serpent, In part, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring or seed, and her offspring, or seed. Um, Anyone familiar with Augustine's City of God, great work, he sees this antithesis between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman as definitional of not just the history of Israel as documented in the Bible, but the history of the world. We're going to get into some of that today, centered on one of the most interesting articles I've ever read, um, and I'm just so excited to share you share this with you. Um, it's called "Antithesis, Common Grace, and Plato's View of the Soul," and it's in a collection of essays in Reformed Apologetics by William D. Denison, by Bill Denison in a book called In Defense of the Eschaton. We'll definitely link to it in the show notes. And it inspired um, my attempt to somewhat do this with the word create relative to how LDS or Mormons, informed ones, will use the word, and the equivalent on the Christian side of the line. So let's dive in. So I won't go into all of this. I I would highly recommend reading the entire thing. But he does start by making a very interesting historical note on universities in the history of America that in 1851, two-thirds of colleges in the U.S. were directly or indirectly under the control of the Presbyterian Church. Now, I'm making a broader point, but just to show, we're talking a confessional church of the time, and look at how much of academia was under the faithful, creedal, Christian um, banner. Um, Indeed, uh, to quote it, nearly a third third of the U.S. 200 colleges at the time of the Civil War had been founded by the heirs of Calvinism, and another third were indirectly controlled by the Presbyterian Church. And the prototype of them all was, wait for it, Harvard, Of course, set up by faithful ministers for faithful ministers, if you can believe it. So he goes on to say, well what what has happened? And he um, frames it around a doctrine uh, that's debated, to this day, and I don't want to get into all of that, though it would be very interesting to explore going forward, but of common grace and how to balance, or really how to understand the antithesis relative to common grace. Um, So obviously, whether they believe in Christ or not, they can see two plus two equals four, right? So how do you understand that relative to the triune God who created everything, and no one can know anything apart from him, and yet you have incredibly smart people who reject Christ, and yet may have incredibly rich insights into a particular subject. And um, what, what Bill worries about um, is that if we don't see antithesis the antithesis is preceding common grace. Common grace will be a way of compromising the faith rather than a way of understanding the faith relative to the worldview of the unbeliever. There's a lot, a lot there. I, I really like this line in, this, in the essay where he says, true Christian thinking must begin with the self-attesting Christ of Scripture. In Van Til's estimation, the Christian must never compromise the pervasive revelation of Christ found in the infallible record of Scripture and summarized in the ecumenical creeds of the early church and the Reformed confessions of the Reformation. It is within this theological and ecclesiastical framework that Reformed scholars should desire to govern every dimension of their discipline from within their identity in Christ. The Christ of Scripture as the ground of the scholar's epistemological self-consciousness defines the parameters of academic interface with the realm of unbelief. Great line. So, always remember this. Antithesis must precede common grace. Antithesis must precede common grace. Bill goes on. By this, Van Til indicates that when analyzing the Christian worldview in relationship to a non-Christian worldview, the two systems holistically conceived are antithetical to each other. Herein, the universal frameworks of two holistic systems of thought are thoroughly distinct and at odds with one another. Nevertheless, although this holistic antithesis exists, such a position does not restrict a non-Christian from affirming a truth in compliance with what has been revealed by God, for example, 2 plus 2 equals 4. In other words, the holistic character of one system of unbelief is antithetical, antithetical to Christianity, whereas a particular element in that system may be a common grace insight, one which can be shared by believer and unbeliever alike. Now, he uses as an example of how we need to be careful it, um, when it comes to even nearly compromising the faith with someone that seems like a friend on the surface um, is Plato's view of the soul. And this is how he frames it. Um, Of course, for those who don't know, Plato saw that the soul of the human was immortal. And so does the Bible, right? The Bible teaches that the soul is immortal. So with that observation, a a Christian scholar can, you know, obviously say, well, Plato's enlightened by natural revelation. Um, Maybe he acknowledged a biblical truth, was on track toward Christian belief. Um, There were some even quirky views in the early church that perhaps he learned from Moses. Um, You even see this on the Jewish side of the line, with someone like Philo. So, Perhaps, you know, Plato may be praised because as a non-Christian, he gives affirmation to a truth in the Christian belief system. So, um, perhaps uh, another reaction we'll see um, that um, for the sake of tolerance, support, encouragement, just focus on where you agree and try to synthesize uh, just Plato with the scriptures. And this can be done more or less uh, carelessly or carefully. Um, you, You will see this in Augustine, for example, in his confessions and the city of God. So here's the thing. If we're not careful, this ideal of peaceful coexistence, that's how Bill puts it, between the two camps can dissolve the antithesis. We can let our guard down. And what this can lead to is that instead of having a biblical worldview, we'll have a Platonic worldview mingled with Scripture. If That's me trying to summarize this. Um, and th- you can hear this even today, right? If you say, well, Plato's view of the immortality of the soul is Christian insofar as it goes. Um, the... Christian philosopher, the Dutch Reformed thinker Cornelius Van Til is one who definitely saw this as a huge threat. Um, And he sees this as one of the reasons for the demise of the church in certain areas, at least when it comes to being faithful to all of scripture. This is a quote from Van Til that Bill includes. Aquinas sought to show the unbeliever that the Christian story is in accord with logic and in accord with fact— whereas Calvin sought to show that logic and fact have meaning only in terms of the story. Once again, um, I'm not trying to get into some of the current Aquinas debates. I'm not clearly on either side, to be clear. Uh, but the point being, if we're not careful, something else can rule other than Christ through Scripture. So Van Til was very, uh, was was kind of, Issuing the clarion call, right, that the Christian scholar should not surrender the antithesis for the sake of compromise, appeasement, anything like that. Now, Plato's view of the soul. Do Plato and Scripture really agree? And by Scripture, I mean the Old and New Testaments of the Bible, of course. Now, when we approach Plato, of course, there's the famous Socratic problem. How much of Socrates is uh, distinct from Plato and all of that? We're going to, of course, <laughs> um, you, you can see how Bill handles it in some of the footnotes and all of that. That's really not the point I want to focus on today. But um, I will be assuming a little bit of knowledge here. Uh, for example... Plato's view of the forms, or maybe ideals might be a better way of putting it. But for Plato, of course, the form world um, of which the material world is a faint reflection is more connected with the human soul than the body is. And this is (laughs) key to see. um, So with respect to knowledge, everything must exist in the transcendent form world in order to be known and exist in the imminent empirical universe in which human beings dwell. So the human soul is said to be the residence of the knowledge of these forms, according to Plato. So because of the soul's immortality, this quality, and the forms that transcend the material world with which we interact bodily, The soul can grasp these objects as it possesses the same quality of immortality. So, the human soul never dies. The soul is immortal. And likewise with the Bible, the human soul never dies. That is to say, the soul is immortal. So, right? Plato and the Bible agree. Or do they? This is uh, the question. Does the content of Plato's view of immortality of the soul agree with the content of the Christian view of the immortality of the soul as disclosed in biblical revelation? In order to answer this question, we must have some competent grasp of the view of the soul's immortality in each system of thought. With respect to Plato, the analysis calls for an examination into the structures of his view of the soul as it functions coherently in his system. Hence, although an empirical comparison reveals that both Plato and Biblical Revelation teach that the soul is immortal, the task remains to discover whether both present the same understanding of the soul. Without a coherent understanding of how a concept functions within another thinker's system, no judgment can be made about whether that concept is antithetical to one's own system. I think that is so key. And that is part of what we're trying to do here, right? Is to get below the surface. There may even be shared words. Look, they say Jesus Christ, we say Jesus Christ, but look deeper, look down into the architecture of the worldview within which they say that, whether conscious or not. Now, for introductory purposes, Plato's view of the soul, once again, interfaces with the form world and also this chain of being, which we'll come back to. That there, and in fact, he has a chart in this book where, of course, vices sink you lower on the chain of being, whereas virtues, uh, you know, you progress, so to speak, on the chain of being. And of course, for Socrates and Plato, and Plato, presumably, the form world, the highest form, is for the philosopher. Because once again, if you're engaging with the transcendent through reason, and faith, by the way, these are not, it's funny how the Enlightenment often frames Greek thought. (laughs) Um, These are very religious people. These are not Salons in Paris in the 1700s. So faith and reason are in both systems as well. But the, um, the philosopher is using his reason to access and grasp and understand the transcendent forms or ideals, and therefore is the ultimate example of what everyone should be. In fact, as we're going to see, that is a key, key way of viewing this chain of being. Now, this framework of Plato's presupposes the cyclical movement of souls and a form of reincarnation. This, and therefore, you know, the philosopher is there practicing for death. At bottom, Socrates' faith is in the moral order of the universe, which demands that a good life on earth will have good reward hereafter. Do good, get good. And, though the soul is immortal, right, the philosopher alone will enjoy the internal existence in the form world without embarking on another cyclical journey back into the empirical world, which he just departed. And you'll see this come out when Socrates is on his deathbed. So why why is Socrates so courageous when he faces death, right? Is it because of Faith in God and the resurrection of the body. No, 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 no. Resurrection of the flesh. No, no, no. What constitutes death? It's it's the separation of the soul from the body. And you have to see this within the system where vices are associated with the body and virtues are associated with the soul. So bodily pres- pleasures of food, drink, copulation, uh, all this desire, it, it, the body's always associated with these Moral vices, wants, desires, fears. So in sum, in contrast to human virtue, the body is inherently evil in this system. Whereas the soul in its pure state is reason, but without the body. Get that? The soul is where reason takes place. That is what interacts with the form world. And the body and the material world are mere illusions, and they get in the way. So the soul is approaching the object with thought alone. The soul is where truth, wisdom, pure knowledge reside. So this is the task of the philosopher, philosopher right? The philosopher alone is equipped with the task of freeing and separating the soul from the body. And being trained in wisdom and reason, he has the ability to free or release his mind from the senses. And uh, I, I think this is a fascinating line. Once again, all the footnotes are in this essay. In doing so, he is able to prevent diseases, contaminations, impediments, confusions, and illusions, which the body brings to the soul. So only the philosopher by means of thought has this type of access to the soul, the residence of pure forms. So, notice how elitist this is. (laughs) So the philosopher, through his superior use of reason, thought, intellect, logic, determines his standing as the highest individual on the hierarchical chain of being by what? His work, his epistemological work. And every other human being is in a state of degradation, somewhere lower on the chain of being with respect to the philosopher. And it is in light of this view of the inner harmony of the soul and the hindrances of the body that Socrates defends that the soul exists after death. So you have this dualistic construct of the body and the soul. Now, this is a coherent system. So what what are some other elements that may be less clearly stated but that we can get from these same sources? One is the cyclical argument or the recycling of souls. And this is interesting. Um, This comes in the context of a dialogue between a skeptic, Seebes, and Socrates, right? Where Seebes takes the position that after death, the soul no no longer exists. Um, We get glimpses of this in uh, Homer's Iliad, by the way. Um, And yet Socrates says, no, 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 no. there is the soul after death, and invokes this recycling of souls. So, but in this system, right, you have this idea that the souls which arrive in the underworld are from this world, and the souls which arrive back here are from there. So that's the cycle. And within the cycle, or I should say in the context of that cycle, is a system of opposites. Socrates states that opposites come from opposites. Specifically, whenever we have a pair of opposites which are on par with each other, they are generated from each other in a cycle of perpetual recurrence. For example, waking and sleeping, greater and smaller. Life and death are also in this category of recurring opposites. And in the construct of cyclical recurrence, Socrates maintains that each process in the cycle must be reversed by its opposite in order to exist. Um, those familiar with the book of Mormon, does this sound familiar? (laughs) Um, Lehi, um, it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. If not so, my firstborn in the wilderness, righteousness could not be brought to pass neither wickedness, neither holiness, nor misery, neither good nor bad. Wherefore, all things must needs be a compound in one. So it's, (laughs) it's so interesting, um, All right, back to Socrates. So, this process is not linear. That's so key. And uh, in the Greek mind, time isn't either. So, it's a cyclical process in a context of opposites, recycling of souls, and... If it were linear, the soul would enter into a sleepless state and life would eventually cease. If you've read the King Follett Discourse, this will sound familiar. Uh, Joseph Smith compared it to a wedding ring, which, of course, he was totally unfaithful to his wife, so it's ironic he'd use a wedding ring, but uh, um, he said, you know, if you cut the ring, if it has a beginning, there must needs be an end. So... Maybe he was restoring something. All right. So he says, of course, though, this this is nonsense. Life does not cease. And so for life to continue with respect to the soul, the soul separates from the body in death, the soul must re-enter a body for life. And this is so, Bill puts it so well. Simply put, it can be said that as the soul enters a body, it becomes incarnate in the body. For Socrates, every reincarnation is an incarnation. Wow. And um, we covered this somewhat on the the uh, John 1 episode, also the virgin birth episode, but Joseph Smith took the incarnation and democratized it. And really, you could even say that Joseph Smith's view of God and men is that every birth in the process of eternal progression is a democratization of the Incarnation as well. Now, in Socrates, you have the recollection argument. So, once again, if you have this dualism with the soul and the body, and you go up the chain of being by philosophy, the use of reason, but the soul has been here before, Learning becomes a recovery of knowledge possessed in a previous existence, a recollection. The soul, the source of true knowledge, must have existed somewhere before it was incarnate in a human shape in order to possess understanding. And he shows that one of the examples would be the form of equality, something being equal. And let's say two people talk about whether two sticks are equal. One sees them as equal, and the other doesn't. Socrates points out that people can only speak of sticks being equal if they know what equal is in the form world. So, equal in the form world and equal things perceived in the sensual world are not the same. Clearly have knowledge of equal in the sensual world, so Socrates argues that we had to have it, have a prior knowledge of it. He uses this as an argument, um, of course, once again for the immortality of, of the soul. So, Only by prior contact with the form world would an individual know what equal is. So all human learning, therefore, generally, is acquired by means of recollection. We have this knowledge before birth. It is lost, and it is reestablished by the senses, recollected, like you're remembering something you knew before the veil. Some will know what I'm referring to. So, the conclusion of this argument is quite simple. If the forms exist before one's birth, then one's soul exists before one's birth. So, the existence of this form world is a necessary part of the proof for the immortality of the soul. Now, interestingly enough, this is something that's often neglected if if you just take an introductory philosophy class. The soul that's polluted by these impure elements of the body, eating, drinking, sexual gratification it gravitates toward a continual existence on earth or in the material world, right? So explicitly in the cycle of reincarnation, inferior souls that uh, depart from the body in death will hang around graveyards waiting for a biological creature to enter, Um, even if that's animals and insects. (laughs) So birds, donkeys, it's really interesting. Uh, So the cycle of the soul... It's, it's the soul is released through death, lingers around graves, it enters a biological creature, and then it enters into another human body. And when the soul enters another human body, it enters at the same level of the vice it practiced when it departed its previous human body. So the chain of being, um, where they are, is, is not fixed, per se. Um, so when a person returns to life, they can move up or down based on how they live, Um, And of course, um, ultimately, that is relative to the prioritization of the soul against the body. So, the, the goal is to move to the status of philosopher where the cycle will cease. And they don't have to incarnate again. Yet, that's only for the philosopher, right? So, they live forever in the afterlife, free from returning it to the body. And Plato also compares that to another creature, uh, the swan. So, once again, does Plato and the Bible agree? Depends on how shallow you leave the concept. And so, I think what often happens, though, is people will think, well, you're just throwing out anything that's not the Bible. And that's not true. I think the Van Til project is not saying just throw out what's not out. It's seeing how that worldview functions. It's it's a call for more understanding, not less. More. It takes more work to see how that variable of the immortality of the soul functions within the platonic scheme in its context. It takes more work and more understanding than to just focus on the superficial similarity. And to be clear, I'm not saying this is what Augustine does, <laughs> Um but I just think we can too easily fall into that and perhaps let in things into the faith that eventually will compromise our creedal orthodoxy and our scriptural standard. So <laughs> the, the um, Bill puts it this way, simply put the the, interrelationship between the form world and the immortal soul is not the Archimedean point on which the Bible predicates the immortality of the soul. For this reason, Plato's holistic construct of the immortality of the soul is antithetical to the holistic teaching of the immortality of the soul found in Holy Scripture. So, the Bible does teach that male and female were created with an immortal soul, Genesis 1, 26-28, 2, 7, 2, 23 That being said, It's also true that we believe it had a beginning, right? So this immortality is given by God. It's God's nature, nature alone that's immortal. Whereas the human soul's immortality is derived from God's creative activity. So I think Calvin states this best. Uh, The term soul is an immortal yet created essence. Um, So when... It, it, and, and notice, too, in the creation account, right, where we see it in distinguishing um, humans from other creatures, right, um, it is the spiritual soul that clearly distinguishes human beings as image of God from the other animals. The engraving of the divine and immortal essence which gives life to a human body. Okay? Okay. So, I really like how Bill ends this, and then I'll move on to what I prepared in light of this essay. I really like this. So, at the, at the end, of course, we he says, Indeed, we cannot pursue the truth unless we begin with the truth. Nevertheless, some within those corridors of, of acad- academy, the academy, Wish to preserve the historic roots of the Christian religion as grounded in the self-attesting Christ of Scripture. If you count yourself among these, then allow your voice to be heard from your seat in the academy. Not from those seats where even Foucault would have to endure nausea as the powerful elites and masses drown you out, but in the imagery of Christ from your designated chair of humility. I love this. Why should it not be that every institution within Christian academia would participate in the posture of the Queen of Sheba before the encyclopedic wisdom of Solomon, the prefigure and type of the encyclopedic wisdom of Christ? Confronted with the picture of the eschatological glory of Christ's wisdom in the temporal life of Solomon, the spirit of Sheba fully dissipated and was immersed solely and absolutely in the eternal wisdom of the Christ of Scripture. Uh, thank you, Bill. What a great chapter. What a great essay. Once again, the book is in defense of the eschaton, and the chapter is called Antithesis, Common Grace, and Plato's View of the Soul. Now, let's turn more explicitly to comparison with Mormonism, and this is something I prepared. And I did write this down, but I will riff as I go. And if I I don't want to read all the sources, so if there's something that you question as a source, please write in. Please let us know. Let me or Brendan know, and we will uh, show you where we get this On, on both the Christian side of the line and the Mormon side of the line. All right. There are many today who would consider Mormonism a form of Christianity. LDS claim it themselves, even identify as Christian. And they may even point to the name of the church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. How can a church that has the name Jesus Christ in its name not be considered Christian? For the sake of this podcast, I'm seeking to analyze the term creation and hope to demonstrate how radically different worldviews can seemingly shelter behind not only one word, but one word that is shared in the terminology of both communities. Historic Christianity. The Bible begins with the line, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1 The text then continues to show an account of the creation of all that exists, both invisible and visible. Colossians 1.16. Indeed, Paul elsewhere declares that God calls into existence the things that do not exist. Contrary to every other ancient system, this is not one God among many gods. Indeed, there's no theogony at all, how the gods rank. Moreover, there's no theomachy, war of the gods, or panthe- different pantheons, younger gods against older gods. No, just in the beginning, God. Who's this God? He he just is. And before anything created. No divine hierarchy of beings, nor any account of divine conflict by which some gods become more powerful than other gods. No, instead, in the beginning, God. Marduk and Baal have to fight for their place, and insofar as creation is in view in the myths of Canaan and Babylon, creation in quotations, Creation. It is actually a matter of organizing preexistent matter into its current configuration after seizing their place in the divine council of gods. The God of Genesis, in contrast, precedes all, including all material. He does not fight for his place. He simply exists as himself, and thus warfare and conflict are not an essential part of creation itself. If there is but one God... There was no conflict embedded, even fated, in the heart of creation. The later fall of man was not an ontological fall. It's not a fall in who man is, but an ethical fall. It was rebellion. With sin and death being both unnatural and rooted in the rebellious heart of man, not the heart of the cosmos. God simply is and creates both temporally from the beginning of time and hierarchically within every moment of time, and yet has no need of anything he creates. This God precedes not only the matter as currently constituted, but also the very existence of matter itself. He is the existing one, the I am, as he revealed himself to Moses. Even the incarnate word in and as the man Jesus, John eight fifty eight. Even when one cries out the sacred name of Yahweh, one confesses in part that this God is pure act. Right? It's it's the third person you're existing when we say Yahweh. It's the third person of the first person I am. Our very existence is an act of dependence on him. Indeed, going back to the first sentence of the Bible, God, by his speech, even his logos, creates everything else, including time and space. Indeed, there is not anything, even nothing, that exists apart from God, right? It's not just creation ex nihilo. It's not just creation out of nothing. It's creation into nothing. And uh, Isaiah 45, Nehemiah 9, John 1, 3, Hebrews 1. And God, even while giving good gifts, never changes in himself. Even in the first few verses of Genesis, we see the one God as the one who speaks, Father, unoriginate, the words spoken, Son, the Logos, and the words applied, Spirit, hovering over the waters. In the New Testament, the Father is called God, the Son is called God, and the Holy Spirit is called God, and yet the strict monotheism of the Hebrew Bible is never compromised. Indeed, Jesus Christ himself, who is portrayed as the Lord come down consistently in Mark, teaches that the Shema is the greatest commandment. Uh, You know, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Indeed, Jesus is added into the Shema by the Apostle Paul, thus reflecting a non-debated point previous to the writing of the letter. 1 Corinthians 8. Offending the Holy Spirit is an offense to God, not a mere created angel or a lesser Neoplatonic manifestation. Christians do not claim fellowship with a force, but a person, indeed God, the Holy Spirit. There is less doctrinal development that is commonly assumed before Nicaea and Constantinople, those councils. Indeed, in this sense, the Westminster Confession, chapters 2 and 4, are clarifying, not innovation. It is preserving the teachings of the entire Bible, as had the creeds of Nicaea and Chalcedon of old. Chapters 2 and 4, just for those who don't know, of God and of the Holy Trinity and of creation. Though we do distinguish the ontological trinity, who God is in himself, and the economic trinity, God is known through his action. We do not separate them. Christians preserve the mystery that through, though God acts, he never changes. Though we distinguish the persons of God, we never compromise the unity of God, leading to polytheism nor the diversity of persons who are the one God leading to modalism. Right? It's not more than one God, and there are real persons, not just masks. <clears throat> Jesus isn't praying to himself, for example. In God, the one and many are equally ultimate, and the relations between Father, Son, and Spirit are eternal and immutable. And this is something that is really deep as part of the Christian faith, that the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, those relationships are also eternal and immutable. All right. Historic Mormonism. In Joseph Smith's King Follett Discourse, LDS Apostle John A. Wood a rational Theology, or the Come Follow Me official church manuals for the current year, Mormonism, likewise, starts, kinda, with the first verse of the Bible, but only as a springboard. As a living witness to the cliche of knowing enough Hebrew to be dangerous, Smith contended that the word Elohim should always be translated as a plural, gods, it Said a scribe, changed it. They wouldn't, they wouldn't do what was right grammatically. Um, by the way, although uh, some out there will make this point still, to Christians when they bring up the first verse of the Bible, even. Um, In their temple, Elohim is still used as a singular. It's kind of funny. Moreover, in his view, in the beginning doesn't refer to a beginning at all, but rather to a divine council a long time ago in which not only Jesus was present, but everyone, all mankind. Thus, even within this verse, historic Mormon belief sees divine councils of gods, plural, of which Jesus is but one, who, though pre existent, is pre existent like all people, DNC 93. Heavenly Father is eternal, but so are you. The, what distinguishes them is how high they are on the LDS chain of being, so to speak. Indeed, this account, insofar as it is about creation at all, is actually about organizing pre existent, even eternal matter, into its current configuration. In his Book of Abraham, Smith quote-unquote, translates. And then the Lord said, let us go down, and they went down at the beginning, and they, that is the gods, organized and formed the heavens and the earth, Abraham one. Throughout this chapter, Smith continues the creation account in which he emphasizes um, the themes of polytheism and the organizing of eternal matter after a manner that is meant to even correct Genesis 1, which he claimed was corrupted by scribes. The organizing principle of quote-unquote creation, that is, organizing matter, is eternally existent laws. Mormonism believes in creatio ex materia, that is, the organization of some things out of existing matter based on self-existent eternal law. Indeed, as is clear from other sources as well as in LDS temples, this is not even the organizing of all things, but of some things. The jurisdiction of gods is limited. According according to DNC 132, 7 and 8, there is no such thing as immaterial matter. All spirit is matter. And I should say this is a huge difference between classic Gnosticism, if I may put it that way, and Mormonism. The question though is which category Gnosticism, Christianity, do, does Mormonism belong in? And I would say it's closer to the Gnostic it, it should be in the Gnostic category even if there are differences they would have with you know the Sethians or something like that thus not only is matter eternal but even spirit is material thus though they say god is eternal they should state that so is law matter even man his intelligence or whatever when jesus teaches god is spirit lds will readily agree <laughs> using their terminology all is material Mormon leaders, scholars have long attacked creatio ex nihilo as not only an evil doctrine, but one from the corrupting influence of philosophy and imposed by corrupt church authorities, for example, Nibley. According to Smith, God the Father and Jesus Christ, who are literally, with no exaggeration, white exalted men, appeared to him as two separate beings, gods, and told him that all the Christian creeds are an abomination in sight and that those professors were all corrupt. Indeed, from this experience, he told his mother that, I have learned for myself that Presbyterianism is not true. And uh, just for the record, uh, Bill and I are both OPC. So we hold to the standards that Joseph Smith hated. LDS Apostle John Wood Sos wrote in a section titled Many Gods, and that's literally the heading of the section, that, quote, in the unseen preexistent world, many other intelligent beings have been engaged in acquiring power over the forces of the universe. These laws are not only eternal as descriptive, but as prescriptive. God would cease to be God if he violated the eternal law, including the cosmic right of free agency. Alma 42, Ezra Tapp, Benson, etc. Moreover, the gospel itself is framed as an eternal system. Indeed, Brigham Young taught that even something like baptism is an eternal ordinance. Yeah. Uh, most people, if they read the Pearl of Great Price, this set of texts that LDS call scripture, though. They don't know scriptures. Even their own function as scripture in LDSism. But um, they will show that Adam was baptized, for example, in their scriptures. But Brigham Young pushed that back even further into eternity, um, which would make sense, given what who Brigham Young thought Adam was, <laughs> for those who know. Continuing what so wrote that the gospel is an eternal plan based upon the everlasting relationships of the elements of the universe, a plan which in some form is adapted everywhere and forever to the advancement of personal beings. That's the gospel. Wow. The fall was actually more a necessary descent, a falling upward even, even a natural course that one LDS apostle, Bruce R. McConkey, called one of the greatest blessings See also Second Nephi two eleven and 25. The fall is actually not a fall. It was simply one in a series of similar events in worlds like this one. I should say in an eternal series of similar events in worlds like this one. What are you doing here? Only doing what has been done in other worlds... Insofar as there is an attempt to affirm in the beginning, what is really meant is a beginning. In the King Follett discourse, Joseph Smith also taught conceptually what is later captured in the famous couplet of future LDS prophet-president, Lorenzo Snow. As man is now, God once was. As God now is, man may become. Now, remember, um, to go back to the Christian comparison, right? that where, you know, Stephen sees Christ at the right hand of the Father or something like that, they take hand and make it literal instead of maybe perhaps the throne in heaven. But it, it is true, anthropomorphisms are present in the Bible, right? But they're merely another example of the transcendent creator condescending in his mercy, to finite creatures who cannot comprehend his majesty, right? Though the passions of the gods of Olympus speak so much to the human condition as to perhaps even evidence derivation from the human imagination, Paul tells the people of Lystra, who mistake him for Hermes, that though he is of like passion or nature as them, and that they should, in contrast, turn to the living God who isn't. You see that? Look at Acts 14, 11 through 15 carefully. And this is even post incarnation. The reader should notice that this being post-incarnation like his warnings of idolatry in Romans 1 23 assume conceptually what the later church would clarify linguistically at Chalcedon right? uh, upholding that creator creation distinction even within the person of Jesus that he is truly God and truly man and though we distinguish we shouldn't separate um, and though we affirm the unity of the person we don't Mingle the natures, the divine and human nature of Jesus. So though God is complex in His unity and exists in and as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the only uncreated, self-existent being. He is one. Everything else was created out of nothing, created into nothing, and this creator-creation distinction is a non-negotiable. Right. So what what do, what do we do with these uh, anthropomorphisms? Right, They are a linguistic analogy to say something true, even if in a limited way. So the same Old Testament that will occasionally say God repents also says that God is not a man, that he should repent. God tells Israel in the Psalms that he's not like man, the very mankind made in his own image and likeness, Psalm 50, 12, 21. Numbers twenty three nineteen. Thus, even when the God-man Jesus teaches his followers to pray Father, which is not a natural right by birth, John one twelve. he then adds the words in heaven, which then reminds us that this is not exactly like a good father, right? This is not literally white men, for example, uh, which I do find it interesting that when Joseph Smith described Jesus, it, he looked like uh, himself, <laughs> white with blue eyes. To borrow from scholar John Oswald, his great book, The Bible Among the Myths, right? Yahweh is a father in his roles, not in a sexual identity. And idolatry is the foundational sin of biblical belief. And God is not a man in himself. Even with Jesus, the word assumed flesh without compromising or changing God or the truth that God is spirit, which Jesus even taught in John 4. So God created humanity, male and female, is not himself either male or female. Now, if we go back to Mormonism, right? Let's... Once again, listen to this. This is LDS prophet president, and it should be said, a brother in law of Joseph Smith through one of his polygamist wives. As man now is, God once was. As God now is, man may become. God became God. It's, yeah. And so can you. That is the Mormon gospel. God became God, and so can you. Now, it'll be couched in families or forever or whatever, but at the core, that's still there. In fact, according to this view, the gods are men with bodies of flesh and bones, D&C 130 and indeed elsewhere with wife or wives, depending which era. In the official LDS publication, Achieving a Celestial Marriage, under the less entitled Celestial Marriage Key to Man's Destiny, it states, God was once a man who, by obedience, advanced to his present state of perfection, Through obedience and celestial marriage, we may progress to the point where we become like God. That's what the official LDS manual for celestial marriage states on page 4. In the lesson itself, it quotes several LDS prophets and apostles who teach things like man is the same race as the gods, and man is God in embryo. Joseph Smith taught that man must learn to become gods themselves in the King Followed Discourse. To see this as a salvation-by-works program alone is actually to greatly understate the difference. This is full self-deification by perfect obedience to eternally existent law system. (laughs) So it's not a salvation-by-works program alone, right? Because once again, salvation, there's almost a universalist streak to Mormonism. And the degree to which that's true depends on which era and which leader. But remember, that's not really the goal of the system. The goal is exaltation or exaltations. So it's a full self-deification by perfect obedience to eternally existent law. And that's in a context of literal ontological identity between gods and men. They didn't create man, male and female. They are men, more exalted. So in a sense, Mormonism is truly monergistic. I think a lot of evangelicals, they think of Mormon salvation, and it's this isn't entirely wrong. That's not what I'm saying. It is, you know, grace and works. And they see it as... Uh, synergistic, right? You know, God does his Christ does his part, man does his part. And on a popular level that might be true. That might be the popular level LDS view. But the core Mormon view is the opposite of the Augustinian view, really the biblical view, but to make clear what I'm saying, which is instead of all of God it's all of man. So in, a, in a, I think truly it's a monergistic system, not a synergistic system. So yes, they teach, quote, in D&C 132, in a section justifying polygamy, go ye therefore and do the works of Abraham. Enter ye into my law and ye shall be saved. That's what it says in D&C 132.32. But notice also in the same chapter it teaches that Abraham, because he was obedient in all things, hath entered into his exaltation and sitteth upon his throne. That's verse 29. So Abraham has achieved a status of godhood already in Mormon uh, revelation. What is meant by this is the status of godhood. Quote, then they shall be gods. And this is linked with the eternal procreative power and eternal lives. That's 132, 20, 22, and 24. The universe is full of worlds populated by men who, by obedience to law, are becoming gods, having children, and then organizing some worlds for them to live and progress on or in. LDS apostle B.H. Roberts taught that, quote, man has descended from God. In fact, he is the same race as the gods. His descent has not been from a lower form of life, but from the highest form of life. In other words, man is, in the most literal sense, a child of God. This is not only true of the spirit of man, but of his body also. Similarly, Brigham Young taught, in a paragraph that likewise sees gods as progressed men, as well as a not-so-subtle denial of the virgin conception of Christ, quote, "...when the time came that his firstborn, the Savior, should come into the world and take a tabernacle, the Father came himself and favored that spirit with a tabernacle instead of letting any other man do it. The Savior was begotten by the Father of our spirits, and that is all the organic difference between Jesus Christ and you and me. That's in Journal Discourses, Volume 4, page 218. That's the only organic difference between Jesus Christ and you and me, is that the Heavenly Father, which to him was Michael or Adam, uh, keep in mind LDS thought, Michael the archangel is the man Adam. The only organic difference between Jesus and you and me is that Michael or Adam um, procreated Jesus, literally, with Mary. Even sex is a literal parallel to heavenly gods whose procreative power is part and parcel of their exalted status. They see the Godhead as exalted men, separate beings and persons. When they say, Heavenly Father, or that all men are children of God— This is an of course, and indeed a literal matter of course. So, when LDS affirm the creation, or affirm they believe in Jesus, is that the same as what we mean? We Christians, that is. Superficial similarity should never be confused with substantive unity. Superficial similarity should never be confused with substantive unity. I, I find it so fascinating. When Cornelius Van Til um, even tries to define the non-Christian thought or the, the you know, this kind of almost extreme of the anti-Christian worldview, it's always the basics of Joseph Smith's King Follett Discourse or something similar. So he says that non-Christian Cornelius Van Til taught that non-Christian thought assumes an ultimate activism. For it, God has to become good. Character is an achievement through a process for God as well as for man. Isn't that amazing? He's not referencing Mormonism, by the way, when he says that. That's in his Defense of the Faith, page 83. Here we have a real-life example of a system tending toward logical consistency in the assumption of, and this is also from Van Til, when it comes to, quote, non-Christian thought. He says, the self-sufficiency of intracosmical relationships. might even say self-existent eternal law. This non-Christian thought developed into a worldview was built into a community as an achievement at root of the one Harold Bloom described as the American Gnostic, Joseph Smith Jr. Okay, that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any feedback, let us know. And until next time, may God be with you.